Practical jokes. Practical jokes. Yeah, that'll work. I had one that was kind of written on. Hey, that'd be even better. Thanks. All right. Always something to keep you on your toes. Well, I got a new laptop. How you like? It's beautiful. It's great. It's fast. It's got all the megabyte pixel things. And it makes it really fast. I'm loving it. Now, if you know, if you've had a new computer, they all come pre-programmed with a few games. And the first thing I do when I get a new computer is I just wipe them out. Just take the games off. Number one, so that the teenagers don't leave youth group and go back to my office and play. And I love the look. There's no games on here. Yeah, get off. And uh, also because I end up wasting a lot of time. Oh, just one game of solitaire. 30 minutes later, wondering where the time went. But I haven't quite got to that yet with this laptop. And there's a game that I love that you can't just play with cards. It's a good electronic game. I'm sure a lot of you have played it. Minesweeper. All right, a few of us are familiar with that. And the way that Minesweeper works is you have a bunch of tiles that you have to turn over, but there's bombs implanted throughout, and you don't know where those are. So what you have to do is identify them, all right? And I'm sure I'm the only preacher in America that's ever used a video game as his opening illustration, but it looks something like that. Does that look familiar? All right, so you just start clicking and turning over tiles. And the numbers represent how many bombs are in the perimeter. Like, let's say, oh, Dave, I need your little pointer. That would have been cool. But let's say we got, you know, one of the the ones. That means the eight tiles that surround that one, there's one bomb. Okay? So what you do is you mark it. Okay? On the right side, let's see, there's a three there. There's three little bombs around that. you got to be clever. Figure out how they got there. And if you mess up, you got all the bombs. Game over. So there you go. There is a point to that, if you're wondering. Today's scripture passage has that theme. Paul calls us today to mark and avoid. That's the whole Idea behind Minesweeper. You've got to mark where the bombs are with a little flag. You right-click it. And then you know to avoid it. Because if you clicked it on the left, the bombs would blow up. Your game would be over. Paul tells us, here at the end of Romans, to mark those who wish to divide and deceive. And to avoid them. Let's look at how he phrases it. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. 
Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus send you their greetings. Two weeks ago, uh, Dave Kaminsky compared the fact that Paul had three benedictions at the end of Romans to a lover or a pair of lovers who just can't end their conversation, just can't get off the phone or just can't end their letters. And I like that analogy. I've got another analogy for today's passage. It's based on maybe all of chapter 16. Last week you heard about uh, Todd Trailer did an excellent job of explaining each of the people that he's uh, greeting in the Romans church. And it seems like Paul is getting to the end when he hits these greetings. Most of his letters, you get the greetings, then you got the benediction, you're done. But in between greeting the Roman church and then the end of this passage where he's saying greetings from the church in Corinth, we know, um, he goes back and he throws in a little more advice. If you remember, chapters 12 through 15 have been the practical advice based on the theology of the beginning of Romans. And now Paul is kind of jumping back into it. And I, I thought the analogy was good of a father seeing his college-age son or daughter off for the first time. Imagine the scene that the father has sat, let's say, his son down all weekend, all morning, whatever it is, and he's been telling him, you know, just remember to study hard, work hard, don't pull those all-nighters, pace yourself. And he warns him about hitting too many parties and tells him to find the closest PCA church to campus. And all of these things. That's Paul's chapters 12 through 15. And then as the son gets in the car and he's backing out of the driveway, and the family's all saying, bye, have a great time, write us, email us. The father remembers. I got, I got a couple more things I got to tell you. Runs after him, stops the car. Don't sign up for any more credit cards and don't let your roommate use your car. Okay, bye. So I see Paul kind of doing that. He's in the middle of his greeting and then he's, he remembers. There's something really important I've got to tell you before I close. Paul is warning the Roman church about a threat. He's warning about people who might come among them. And we're not real sure who or what that was other than what we have here in this passage. Who are these people that Paul is warning against? You know, we don't really know their identities, and it's just as well, maybe, because what we need to understand is what they do and what the characteristics of people 
who threaten our churches. And so there's a few of those I want to pull up. Um, let me grab my clicker. A little easier. Nope. Back to the games. These are people, as you read through the scripture, who at bottom line, base level, are not serving Christ, but their own appetites. And I put appetites in quotes because in other translations, um, it's really personal interests, uh, a good way to translate personal desires. Right, it's not necessarily that they're hungry. They just want to hit the potlucks. But uh, it's that their motivations are selfish. Perhaps sensual desires, um, but probably motivated by greed, a want of power. And if we think that doesn't happen in the church, we're a bit naive. And in the Christian community as a whole, uh, we see people rise up in the Christian community, become famous, and there's, uh, I think there's an extra spiritual shine on people uh, that you don't get if you become famous outside uh, a religious context. And that's appealing to some. But they're not serving Christ. Next, Paul says that they use flattery and smooth talk. These are not people who are going to be angry and confrontational, necessarily. More likely, they're the opposite. And they tickle itching ears, as Jesus warned against. If they tell you what you want to hear, we should, uh, a red flag should go up. If we sit under a teacher, preacher, uh, Bible study leader who never challenges us, never confronts us, simply confirms uh, the way we think uh, we should live. And so this is one of the characteristics. Next, they deceive naive people. We know from the history of cults that they target and prey on people who are not well grounded in faith. Um, perhaps churchgoers, uh, people very interested in spirituality, maybe even baby Christians. Um, but those are easy targets for men like Jim Jones, David Koresh, who will lead them astray by distorting the scriptures. Those people don't understand. Next, they put obstacles in the way of truly serving God, of of understanding the gospel. And again, their, their motivation is not to see people get closer to Christ, but turn away. And last, what Paul mentions here is that they cause divisions. They split the church. They would like to see the body of Christ pulled apart. And of course, we see legitimate division Every now and then. But Paul does not want to see these people divide the church of Rome over issues that threaten basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And so we ask, why is it so important that to Paul that the early Christians 
be so watchful of those who taught things contrary to his teachings. And I think we tend to forget how fragile the church's understanding was back then. Uh, We forget that the New Testament was still being compiled. Paul was still writing letters. A lot left to go. The uh, accounts of Jesus from the apostles were circulating. But we don't know if many of the churches had all of these or had seen them or had copies of them. And so they were piecing together. We, we, We... Assume that the Jews have grown up with the Old Testament and learned the Torah and its teachings. But the Gentiles probably had very little understanding of the Old Testament before becoming believers. And so while, yes, they had some scripture and they uh, probably copied down the letters of Paul and kept them, there was no guarantee. And Really, the method of how the churches received the gospel was that the apostles, the church planners, the Pauls, the Timothys, the Barnabases would go and disciple and teach the message. We have this phrase, contrary to the teaching. And I think that's just a great little phrase that emphasizes the core doctrines that Paul has been teaching that that he is so concerned. He mentions it over and over in his, in his books, his letters. He tells Paul, he tells Timothy, guard the trust. And he starts out books like Galatians and says, you've fallen away. How have you been so easily deceived from what the message that we preached to you was? And so there is this verbal and sometimes written, but not fully formed uh, gospel. I mean, they had the full gospel, but they didn't have the full New Testament like we do today. We, we can settle matters, I, I hope, a lot easier if someone comes in and tries to teach us things contrary to scriptures. I hope we all pull out our Bibles and say, okay, show us where you think that is. I've never heard that before. Show it to me. I think of some of the uh, newer theological movements I'm sure we've talked about them before in sermons, things like the openness of God, where God doesn't necessarily know the future. He doesn't necessarily know what's going to happen. Really? No. Show me in Scripture where that is. Paul says, hold to the teaching. Don't let them pull you away from the teaching So what is our response to these dividers, these who would deceive? Number one, going back to the minesweeper illustrations, mark them, avoid them, stay away. You'll notice Paul doesn't say burn them at the stake, chase them out of town, drown them, any number of things that... Christians throughout the centuries have been guilty of, Protestant and Catholic. And he doesn't even say right here that we are to debate and engage them. And while I'm sure in some context that is entirely appropriate, 
Paul says, listen, just keep an eye on them and avoid them. Stay away from them. It's, I think it's the same idea when Jesus said, flee temptation. You see temptation coming, maybe you think it's the spiritual thing to fight it or to go to battle. No, it's a lot better to just flee. And I think the same idea here, as Paul says, just walk away. Keep them at arm's length. Don't listen to them because they will corrupt. What else can we do? How else can we respond? We can continue to obey the teachings. And this is based on the, uh, Paul's comments that, Romans, I've heard of your obedience and I am joyful about it. They were getting a reputation of obedience. And that is a good thing to have a reputation about. And I want to talk for a minute about doctrine. Um, because I've had a, a number of conversations through the years and actually a couple just over Thanksgiving break uh, with, with believers. And the gist of some of these conversations that I've had, and I, you may or may not have had them as well, the argument goes something like this. Why are we so concerned about doctrine? Why do we, um, you know, get so fancy in our teaching? And why do we think it's so important to try to learn all the deep truths? And uh, can't we just keep it simple? Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. And of course, there is a great point with that. We need to keep Jesus Christ and him crucified as the central thing. And the thing that we always come back to and the thing that we build upon our foundation. But I think there's something to be said for going deeper and deeper as we learn. And it's funny because the people that I talk to that think there is some, I don't know, ceiling to what we should learn. And, and certainly acknowledging that there are mysteries of God that we will never know. And shouldn't even try to know. But what I think is funny is that those same people value expertise in other areas. Right? I was with, uh, we were talking to one couple. And the husband had uh, that, this past summer, kind of fixed up a house as, as an investment. And he was explaining to me all these things that he did. He, he uh, had that, this big asbestos removal project. And he was um, refitting pipes and all this stuff. And I think when my eyes glazed over, he eventually changed the subject because I didn't have a clue. Um, but to him, he had to have a lot of knowledge to be able to rebuild a house, to restore it. We watched a lot of football that weekend, as I'm sure many of you did. And uh, football can be an easy game, right? You either pass it Run it, and the defense tries to stop you, and kick it. Um, but as you get more and more into sports, and in football you learn phrases like the 3-4 defense, the, the option, the halfback option, the nickel package, which to the average football or non-sports fan doesn't mean a thing. But to those who really get into it, it really adds to our enjoyment of watching of seeing the strategy that both sides play. 
And it becomes more than just running, throwing, kicking, doesn't it? Why should theology be any different? I mean, I want the mechanic who works on my car to understand all the parts and how they work and and what fouls them up and what keeps them from working properly. I want the doctor who's going to operate on me to know exactly what he's doing and what all the parts of the body do before he touches me. So why should we not expect this from our leaders? And from, really from the average Christian as they grow in maturity. I mean, I do not want to sit under a pastor who doesn't know the difference between limited atonement and unconditional election. Now, is that the most essential thing for the average person, member of a congregation? Probably not. But bringing it back to Paul, the more we learn, the more we investigate the Scriptures the better we will be able to watch out for errors. And I understand that that comes up to a lot of hair splitting and uh, useless arguments, as Paul phrases somewhere else. But I've actually been in a uh, small group of youth pastors uh, in Florida. I remember sitting around and they the, the gist of their argument was that the more training a minister, a youth pastor, whatever, so anybody in the ministry receives, the less legitimate their ministry would be. And I, I took me back. I mean, the fact that I'm taking seminary classes, I'm just going to get useless in my teaching, apparently. <laughs> when Dave finishes his doctorate. <laughs> useless, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And of course, we don't learn just to show our great faith or our great learning, but so that we can understand God richer and fuller, the true meaning of theology, to know God. And how are we to know where the error is if we haven't investigated and learned? There is great balance, of course. But obey the teachings. The last thing Paul says Be careful. Be wise in the good and innocent about evil. And here we, uh, what echoes in my mind is, is Jesus saying, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. So Matthew 10. So Paul is echoing that. We need to be wise. In the good things, innocent about evil. Now, there's a thinking in the world today that we can't shelter our kids, right? I've heard people say this. I've read articles that say, hey, we need to expose kids early because they need to grow up fast. They need to get wise to the world. And of course, we would, yes, say that there is a time to teach your children the birds and the bees, about death and war and these things. But you know what? I'm going to err on the side of caution and protect my kids' innocence as long as we can. And we realize that kids are not going to be innocent forever. 
But I remember sitting with another youth pastor and saying, hey, are you going to go see, I forget what it was, Shrek or something. He said, no, you know, my kids haven't mentioned it, so I'm not pushing it. We're going to put that off as long as we can. And uh, not that that's a terrible movie, but just the idea that let's hold our kids' innocence highly. But I think this is more than just an innocence that stems from not knowing. Right? Our children have just, I mean, we, we do acknowledge their depravity from birth. But we also acknowledge that they are not uh, wise to the ways of the world and uh, haven't grown into the sarcastic uh, teens that they will. No, just kidding. <laughs> teens. But there is an innocence, I think, that can come even after we've exposed, we've been exposed and exposed ourselves to the world. I mean, I I remember seeing an R-rated movie at the age of 12 and being exposed to things that I didn't realize existed. And I wish I hadn't. And there's a great song... uh, Great line from a song by Rich Mullins. I've gone so far from my home, seen the world, and I have known so many secrets. I wish now I did not know. Teens, children, don't be in such a hurry to grow up. The world and its depravity will be waiting for you. But those of us that have seen, I mean, certainly we don't want to be naive to the ways of the world. And even reading the scriptures, we get accounts of adultery, incest, brutal murders. So it's not that we are completely avoiding it. But I think at some point we choose innocence. Even as we try to preserve it in those that still have it. It's a way of being childlike that that Jesus calls us to. Yes, I've seen the depravity of the world. I've seen the darkness that's out there. But I choose not to desire it. Not to participate in it. I think that's the sense that Paul is calling us to. Let's go to the next verse, verse 20. We have a reassurance and a blessing. And I, I kind of liken it to this. I remember uh, warning my children, Miles and Wesley, I said, hey guys, we're in the mall. We can't have you run away. you got to stay right by mommy and daddy. Because somebody might try to grab you, take you away. And there's this balance. I didn't want to scare them, but I just want to scare them enough to warn them. But I immediately said, oh, Daddy would never let that happen to you. But just be careful. And I feel like Paul has done the same thing. He's saying, Roman church, Christians, be careful. Watch out. But God is watching out for you. And God will ultimately triumph. Even soon. And it's because of His grace, because of Jesus' grace, that we can do any of this. And Paul's giving 
a reassurance and a blessing. It's no secret that I can't wait to see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this coming weekend. And this, this phrase makes me think about the scene. And if you haven't read it or you don't know the plot and you don't want me to spoil it, cover your ears. But I can't wait to see how they do the scene where Aslan crushes the witch. Right? Okay, you can pull them out. It also echoes in our minds Genesis 3.15, which is the very first time in Scripture where any mention of the Messiah is. It says this, if you have it right at the beginning, turn to it. But uh, God is punishing Adam and Eve and the serpent for their roles in the first sin. And when he gets to Satan, the snake, the serpent... He says, I will put enmity, strife, battle between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And that's, we believe, a prophecy of what Jesus will do to Satan and his followers. But it's also, I remember uh, my one of my Old Testament classes, it's a theme that drives throughout the Bible. So as you see that God's chosen people warring against pagan nations, this is a theme that they will be at, at odds with each other. And so I, I see this phrase and we say the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul's promising this to the Roman Christians. And we look at the word maybe soon and we think, well, the end of time didn't come. Maybe Paul was off on his uh, eschatology or something. There's one of those hard doctrine words, sorry. But uh, I think what Paul is getting at is that as you are faithful and as you watch out and protect the peace and purity of the church, you are cooperating with God and God will crush Satan and keep him from destroying the church. The final four verses in the scripture are Paul's listing of who is with him. If we remember, Paul is in Corinth staying at a man named Gaius' house. And he's dictating the letter to Tertius. So we've got kind of a list here of who is probably in the room or has been in the house with Paul as he's dictating the letter. And you can just imagine the scene as he's finishing up. Maybe everyone's gathered around and saying, hey, send them greetings from me. Make sure you put my name in there. And even the, uh, the man who's just writing it down, he says, oh, yeah, I want to pass on that. I want to greet you in the Lord. And kind of as Todd did last week with the Roman Christians who Paul was giving greetings to, I want to look at each one of these very quickly. Because it gives us a good picture of the church in Corinth. Timothy, probably one of the more famous associates of Paul, was his protege. He took him, it was a partner in ministry, much younger. He was a full-time minister, church planter. 
And uh, so we have him. Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Um, Paul mentioned, I know the NIV says, my relatives. Um, some of the commentators I read said that's probably not meaning Paul's blood relatives, but meaning Jews, fellow Jews. Um, just a way to differentiate between the Gentiles and the Jews there. And so he has these, as far as we know, average church members. Tertius, and actually the last guy, Cordus, were most likely house slaves or servants of Gaius. But you notice that they also greet the Roman church and greet them in the Lord. And so all indications is that these men were believers as well and part of the church, as well as their master, Gaius, who probably either hosted the church, when they had house churches back then, or was just a great uh, host for people either coming through or different people from the Corinthian church would stay there because Paul says, I'm enjoying his hospitality as is the whole church. Then we have Erastus, who was a city official, director of public works. And so just to pull all those together, much as Todd did last week, we just see a great picture of diversity in the Corinthian church, just as we saw the diversity in the Roman church earlier in the chapter. And so at both ends of this letter, there's a church that is full of different status, people of different status, different backgrounds. We have slave and free. We have wealthy and probably not so wealthy. We have ministers and public officials. And yet, they were all united and bonded in Christ. Now, if you're wondering whether the Roman church listened to Paul's warnings about the deceivers, about those who would divide the church. We have a report from Paul. The book of Philippians is written from a Roman jail. And he's been there to Rome by that point in his ministry. And here's what he's found. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Apparently, the Roman Christians didn't completely hear and heed Paul's message. Some did. Some were very faithful and preached the gospel. But there were some who obviously had been let in and preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Now Paul goes on to say, I'm just happy the gospel is being preached. So there is hope in all situations. But the question for us, is do we hear and heed Paul's warnings? Will we learn 
from what He has to tell us? Do we listen, investigate the claims of those who come into the church abroad and our own local body and bring ideas that are contrary to the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith? There's a lot of, I would say, freedom in how we interpret a lot of uh, Christianity and a lot of issues. But when it comes to Jesus' deity, His virgin birth, His death and resurrection and atonement for sin, and many other or, uh, doctrines, that core, when someone tries to pull us away from that, Paul tells us, watch and avoid that kind of thinking. Mark it so you recognize it and stay away from it. Will we be swayed by those who have their own agenda? Draw us away from the gospel by smooth talk and flattery? Or will we stand true to the scriptures? I pray that Potomac Hills would be a church that follows the gospel. Father God.